may be seated. This week and next, we will be looking at Genesis 4. It's a passage of Scripture that is very closely connected with Genesis 3. Not just because it follows one chapter after it, but thematically, they, they really do go together very much. As Jack Collins notes, Genesis 4 describes what happened to the first family after their disobedience in Eden. It illustrates both the decline into sin that results from the first disobedience and the enduring faithfulness that God has to his promise. What wonderful news there is in that. Before we turn our attention to the scriptures, though, let's ask God for his blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, we, we do come to you now in these difficult times, finding great comfort leaning into you. And we find great comfort in your word, which assures us of our salvation in Christ Jesus. May we see that clearly today. And may you impress upon us your will for us, not so that we might earn your blessing, but so that we might respond rightly to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now as I read from Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. This is the inspired word of God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a, a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me 
people kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, we see in the story of Cain and Abel an interesting story. We see it, we have certain reactions. Our first reaction likely is that is terrible. He killed his brother. How could he do such a thing? That's a right reaction to have because it most certainly was terrible. For most of us, I think there's probably a second reaction we have, and that is to think, you know, this isn't the most relatable story for me. I, I don't have a lot of personal experience with fratricide. I, I don't go around killing my brothers. My brothers don't go around killing me. And so it's kind of a distant story. Might be our first reaction. But actually, I would argue it's a pretty universal story. It's a pretty universal story in that we see in it, first, that the God of grace deserves to be worshipped. Secondly, that sinful man deserves to be judged. And then finally, that the enduring faithfulness of God exists in the midst of our sin. First, the God of grace deserves to be worshipped. And before we even dig into the text, I want to make this point. Even before we, we see God doing anything for us, we should realize that as the God and creator of all things, we owe him complete loyalty, complete fidelity, complete and total worship. Right Before he's ever done anything else for us, that should be, as his creatures, our stance toward him. Beyond this, though, through no merit of our own, and actually in spite of anything that we have done, he has chosen to mercifully pour out his grace upon us. And even in the face of man's rebellion, he has done this. Remember, this, this is on the heels of Genesis 3, the fall of mankind. And God shows his grace here first in this chapter, and the fact that God's good gift of marriage and the family are maintained. We mentioned this last week, actually the last two weeks, that it's a wonderful thing that, that God maintains his gift of marriage and the family. Even though Adam and Eve sin, God did not say, well, never mind, this whole marriage thing obviously isn't working out well. He remembered that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he, in his grace, maintained this. And not only maintained 
marriage in the family, but chose to work out his plan of recreation and redemption through marriage in the family. As he promised back in Genesis 3.15, he would do. And so we see here in verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And it's actually a beautiful euphemism that is used here. Some versions of the Bible translate it differently. They'll say something like, Adam lay with his wife, or Adam had relations with his wife. But, but really, I think something is lost when we mistranslate it that way. <laughs> because what we see in this idea of knowing is a level of intimacy and transparency and openness that existed before the fall. Remember, the man and woman were naked and not ashamed. But then when they fell, what was their first reaction? They knew they were naked, and they covered themselves up. They hid themselves, not just from God, but from one another. And so here we see that there is... Uh, an intimacy, a, 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 an openness that is restored between the two of them. And there is nothing better than being fully known and fully loved, right? I mean, you think sometimes of, of falling in love in those very first days of falling in love and, and there's this puppy love that you have and, oh, everything's wonderful and everything's perfect and isn't, isn't she the best? Isn't he great? But you don't really know each other, right? You haven't come to find out yet that, man, she does some really weird stuff. Gosh, he's kind of annoying, right? You, you don't really know each other yet. On the other hand, sometimes you'll see people who have been married for 50 or 60 years, right? And you say, oh, that's wonderful. Except they don't really like each other. We see both of those. And both of those are less than perfect love, right? But, but how wonderful it is to be perfectly known and perfectly loved. That's how God loves us, right? That's the picture. God knows everything about you. He knows your sin better than you know your sin, right? If you sat down and made a list of all the sins you've committed, it would be woefully short. God would actually say, nope, that's only page one. We've got a couple more volumes of the encyclopedia here. And you would think, my goodness, he, he could never love me then. But in Christ Jesus, he does. And what a blessing that is to be so loved by God. And that is why, not coincidentally, the activity that a husband and wife partake in together is limited to a husband and wife partaking in it together. Because it is to be a picture of the love that God has for his bride, the church. The union coming together, the perfect knowledge, the perfect transparency and openness to becoming one. We are joined together with Christ by faith. 
So that so much so that when God looks at us, he actually sees Christ instead. What a blessing. But we're getting far afield here. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. We see God's grace again in this, right? She says she's gotten a man with the help of the Lord. God's grace is there and that he has given her this great gift. A great gift, first of all, just in that she's been given a son, a child, right? Any of us, any of us who who have had children know what a great gift from God it is to have a child. And she realizes it has come from God. She names him Cain, Cain, which, which the Hebrew sounds like the Hebrew word for gotten. And that's why she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's also an amazing gift of his grace that he has invited her into this work of creation. Up to this point, God has done all the creating of human beings by himself. But here, he invites her to play a role. He invites her into this work. He works along with her, in her, through her. And it doesn't end there. In verse 2, we see again she bore another son, Abel. And it's interesting, the word Abel is the same word that we'll find in Ecclesiastes. Remember when we studied that together? And at the beginning of it, it says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Right? The idea of a mist that vanishes in the air. That's what Abel's name meant. It was important for what was to come. But again, we don't want to get too far afield there. First, we need to realize that Cain and Abel realized that the God of grace deserved to be worshipped. We see that's exactly what they do. Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, we don't know how long, quite likely a very long time, I would argue, but that's for another day as well. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's what he did. He worked the ground. So he brought some of that. And Abel also brought, we see in verse 4, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And when we read that, what causes us to ask why? And the text doesn't out and out say why it is that God had regard for the one and not for the other. I think we have some clues. Some people suggest that maybe it had to do with the fact that the Cain brought a, uh, an offering from the, from the plants of the field, from the fruit of the ground, whereas, whereas Abel brought an animal and offered a blood sacrifice. And, and we know that ultimately, in order for our sins to be washed clean, Blood is necessary. The blood of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is the only way by which we might be cleansed of our sin. And so we might think that that's what it is, but, but I don't think so, because this is not an atoning sacrifice that's being brought. It's merely an offering, something that they're giving to God. <clears throat> Furthermore, oftentimes in the law, we'll see that God requires his people, to 
to bring offerings of fruits and grains. More likely, I think, we can see if we look more carefully, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. He, in shorthand, brought his first and his best. He looked at the flock and said, what's the best one I've got? And he brought his best to the Lord and gave it to him. Whereas Cain, eh, somebody grabbed me something there. Okay, I'll take that. Right? In, in short, what it comes down to is Abel gave in faith. He gave in faith. Gave trusting in God and, and as an expression of that trust, giving to God. Right? Hebrews 11 says, in fact, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Right? He, he gave by faith. He, he gave out of a heart that was overflowing with love and trust of God. And that's why God tells us that, that when we give, it's not just a, a thing that we should do under compulsion, but rather... It is something that we should do cheerfully. And when, when I say that, I'm not just talking about giving to the church, right? We appreciate the gifts that are given to the church. They enable us to operate. They enable us to pay the salary of employees, including myself. They enable us to do ministry, to support missions, to do other things. We appreciate that. That is a good thing. That said, when we read about in the Bible giving, we should not just think, putting my money in the offering plate and I'm done. Rather, it should be a heart of giving that is, is seen in all of our life, right? Where we give joyfully and cheerfully to others who are in need. It, it should be our default position as those who have received from the graciousness of God, and it certainly wasn't the case with Cain. When God called him, he said, it says that Cain was very angry and his face fell. Literally, it says that Cain burned, and, or it burned to Cain. We talk about that sometimes. We burn with anger. And sometimes we burn with anger toward God, don't we? Sometimes we've had experiences that have come into our life, things that we have faced, and, and it just makes us so angry at God. Why would he let that happen? Why would he do that to me? And we just, oh, we're so mad. We become angry with God. And normally, I think it's because we think that we have been mistreated. We think that God sent something our way that we don't deserve. But when we think this way, we've forgotten all about Genesis 1 through 3, haven't we? We've forgotten that God created all things good, that man fell in his sin, that we participated in that sin ourselves, and that we deserve nothing but the condemnation of God. 
The righteous judgment of God should fall upon us. That should be what we expect. There's nothing too bad for us that we don't deserve worse. Now, sometimes God gives us grace. Sometimes he gives us more grace. Sometimes he gives us less grace. But in the times that he gives us less grace, we should not think that we are somehow being mistreated because we didn't get as much grace as we got yesterday or as much grace as somebody else is getting today. Right? That's what Cain is thinking here. He's thinking, I don't deserve this. He becomes angry, and the Lord calls him on it. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, won't you be accepted? He just calls it like it is. If you do the right thing all the time, everything will be fine. It's true of you too, and me as well. That's all God asks us. Just be perfect, always, without exception. What, you're not? Yeah, neither am I. There's all kinds of places we fall in that duty. You see, because, because our duty is not just showing up for church. It's great that we're here today. We love being back together. Right? But, but that's kind of where Cain's mindset is right here. He said, God, I, I showed up for church this, today. I even put something in the collection plate. What more are you asking of me? Well, that's easy, Cain. What more am I asking of you? It's put this way in the Unison Scripture reading that we read before. Right? Love the Lord your God. With all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's asked of you. That's what's required of you. In fact, in Mark 12, we read that, that to do that is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He says all the religious rituals are great. That's fine. But if you're not loving your neighbor and loving God, then they're worthless. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 9, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Right? It's not just about following religious rituals. We turn to the words of Amos, the prophet, who reminds us, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. And maybe that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And he goes on to say there to people who didn't do this, to people who, who didn't establish justice in the gates, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, peace offerings of your fatted animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, in short, we need to be like those to whom Micah spoke when he said, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness 
or mercy to walk humbly with your God. Too often, I think we, we within the evangelical church sometimes set the seeking of justice for others against the gospel, right? Which kind of church are you? Are you the kind of church that, that believes in the gospel, the gospel that says we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, and that that is the gospel? That's the only means by which you might be saved. Are you that kind of church that proclaims that gospel? Or are you one of those churches that's involved with justice and mercy and all those works? Those shouldn't be set against each other. Right? We are those who have received the mercy of God. We are those who have, who have been treated more rightly than we deserve. That should inform how we live our lives. It's all over the scriptures. And so we should, because we believe in the gospel, be those who seek justice and love mercy and act with humility before our God. Far too often, though, we don't act with humility. We, we are like Cain. And the desires of sin are crouching at our door, and they ultimately devour us. We see that man's sin deserves God's judgment. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Some versions add, let us go out to the field together. Whether it says that or not, that's what they did. Cain rose up, strikes down his brother, and he is dead. We need to realize that sometimes the world will see us acting rightly, and it will hate us for it. We will prick the conscience of a sinful world when we act rightly. That's what happened here with Cain and Abel, right? Cain saw Abel doing the thing he was supposed to be doing, and he became angry at him. First John chapter 3 says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world will hate us if we follow Jesus faithfully. That doesn't mean we should give them more reasons to hate us. <laughs> but, but if we follow him faithfully, there will be a sense to which the world hates us because they will be convicted of their sin as they see us walk in holiness. But at the same time, we need to realize that, that we can be overcome by our own sinful desires. We can be led astray by them. Each person is tempted, James tells us, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, which has conceived, gives birth to death, and sin, when is fully grown, brings forth death. Sounds like what happened with Cain, and it can happen with us. Now again, we might say, I, I've never murdered my brother. I've never done that. But Jesus is very clear, is he not? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. Right? We might not have actually picked up the knife and stabbed. We might not have gotten out the gun and shot. But our sinful hearts are inclined toward murder. We are guilty 
of that sin. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, John tells us. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so the Lord says to Cain, where, where is Abel your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer in short is yes. We are. We are our brother's keepers. We are responsible for our brothers and our sisters and our friends and our neighbors. We're responsible to care for them, to, to seek their well-being. Right? Our, our responsibilities don't end with do no harm. Right? Other than that, just be neutral to everyone else. No, the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way when talking about the sixth commandment that, that says thou shalt not murder. It says that that commandment requires that we must defend others from violence. We should also harbor charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness. Our speech and behavior should be peaceful, mild, and courteous. We should be tolerant of others, be ready to be reconciled, patiently put up with and forgive injuries against us, and return good for evil. Finally, we should provide aid and comfort to those in distress, as well as protect and defend the innocent. If we're not actively doing these things, then we are guilty of the sin of Cain. We are guilty of murder. God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and, and Abel's blood calls out for justice. And so it is with the blood of all who are killed unjustly. Okay? Their blood cries out for injustice, and we should be concerned about that. We should be committed to that. We should work for that. We think we want justice, but the reality is we want justice insofar as it affects us, right? If somebody wrongs me, you better be sure I want justice. If somebody wrongs somebody else, eh, maybe. But you see, that shows that I'm more concerned with me than I'm concerned with justice. I should be concerned regardless of who it is, and therein lies the problem. Beyond that, if we truly got justice, the justice we say we desire, we would be condemned, as we mentioned before. And so, what we really need is not just justice, we need mercy. And we see that, finally, in the enduring faithfulness of God in the midst of our sin. Now you are cursed from the ground, verse 11 says, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood. Remember, for, for Adam, he was cursed, or the ground was cursed because of him. For impenitence Cain, he says, you are cursed. And if we couldn't already tell from his actions, we can tell from the word of God here that, that Cain is the seed or the offspring of the serpent that we talked about back in chapter 3. Right? He's, he's that line being followed through him. But God is gracious, even in the face of his heinous sin. He says, you, you're, you're going to work the ground. It, it's no longer a yield to your strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. And, and, and that seems really bad, but again, let us remember, it should be worse. But beyond that, when Cain says, my punishment's too great for me to bear, you know, because you've taken me from the ground, from your face I'll be hidden, I'll be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. What does God say to him? 
right? He, he looks at Cain, who, who thinks the punishment is too great because he has too small a view of his own sin, too small a view of God's holiness. He thinks that his punishment is too great. And God is actually gracious to him. God is gracious to him. He gives him opportunity to repent. He, he gives him protection from being murdered himself. He is gracious to him. You know, Cain thinks that he is having too bad a punishment fall upon him. But we know, don't we, that the punishment that should have fallen upon him is the judgment of death. Cain truly deserved to die for what he had done, and yet he doesn't. There's grace in that. Beyond that, God intervened to protect Cain from that punishment, to protect others from killing him. When he knew that others were going to injustice, strike Cain down. What did God do? He intervened. That's the same thing he did with us, right? We deserve to have death fall upon us. We deserve the judgment of death to fall upon us. But God has stepped between us and that judgment in the person of Christ Jesus so that, so that we do not bear that penalty, but he has borne it for us. And we are marked out just as Cain was. We don't know exactly what that mark was. It doesn't say exactly. I don't want to get into too much speculation. But, but we are marked out in the same way. We are marked out as those who are of Christ Jesus. And for that reason, we need not bear the penalty that we justly deserve. And as Tim Keller put it, he says, Jesus is the true and better able who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. And his blood pays the penalty that we owed. We no longer owe it. We are free in Christ Jesus. And that should have an impact on us. Sadly, it didn't for Cain. Cain, we see, goes off to Nod, which literally means wandering. He goes off as a wanderer wandering away from God. And we know from the New Testament, sadly, he did not turn back. The New Testament talks of the way of Cain in exclusively negative terms. It says nothing about repentance and reconciliation with God, even though it was there for him. And that is the real tragedy for Cain. Not that he was taken from the ground, not that he was a fugitive or a wanderer, not that, that any of these things were true of him, but that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and that it was as he had feared, from your face I shall be hidden. And as we read this, it should be impactful on us, the results of sin. Just as we are when we turn, turn on our, our television, when we read the news, when we look online, we see the sin in the world, and we're like, oh, my. Reading this story should do the same thing to us. We should be shaken 
by it. But then we should find our comfort in Christ Jesus. We should find our comfort in Christ Jesus. And that's why at the end of every service, how do we end our service? I have a benediction. It's a blessing that is offered forth. A good word. Not from me, but, but from the word of God. From the scriptures. Right? And God, God blesses us and it reminds us of the gospel. The gospel which means that we who, like Cain, deserve to be cursed and driven from the presence of the Lord, instead, through Christ Jesus, are ushered into his presence, where he blesses us and keeps us. That we who, like Cain, deserve to be hidden from his face in Christ Jesus, have his face shine brightly upon us. We who, like Cain, deserve to be downcast at the righteous judgment of God falling upon us. Instead, because of Christ Jesus, have his countenance lifted upon us and receive his peace. Brothers and sisters, remember always that we are just like Cain. But in Christ Jesus, we are the blessed children of God. Amen. Lord, help us to remember that always. May it fill our lives with joy and peace in the midst of trial and tribulation. May it move us to action in the face of injustice. And may it cause us to proclaim your truth and your gospel and your grace as the only means by which we might be saved. We pray in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the one who paid it all for us. Amen. Please rise with me now as we sing hymn number 276, Jesus Paid It All. <laughs>